This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt, and in this episode, we're going to talk to Lisa. Lisa is a cash flow planner for small businesses, and we'll talk a little bit about how Lisa showed up on the podcast. I really like this. Before we do, of course, the continuing education credits, this episode will be good for one life insurance credit in Alberta. No accident and sickness credits for this episode. Lisa and I don't touch on any accident and sickness related issues except very tangentially. This will be good for a credit in Manitoba. This will be good for a financial planning credit. And this will be good for an IAS credit as well through Advocus. There will be no IROC credits for this episode either. We don't talk about anything that's really securities related. This is a financial planning discussion and really a financial planning discussion that's very specific to small business owners. You'll hear in the interview that Lisa does a really good job of not using a lot of lingo. She does not get caught up in a ton of sort of accounting terminology. I would imagine this is one of her assets when she's talking to her small business owner clients. I think you'll hear this, that she's a very careful communicator. She really considers the language. And I didn't have a lot of requirement, as I sometimes do, to go through and uh, sort of define a lot of terms here. That being said, I will define one term, and that is uh, chattels. So she refers to chattels here. Chattels is really an accounting word for physical assets. It just means stuff you can buy and sell. It's also an insurance term for those who are listening who might be property and casualty insurance licensed. Of course, we insure chattels, and that's something that you could physically lose or have damage to. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. And you'll actually hear the interview show up in two portions. We're going to have the first chunk with Lisa. And then she came back to me afterwards and said, hey, can we add a little bit to that? And I was more than happy to do so. I felt like she had a lot of good knowledge to share. And she gives a little plug to the CFP program, which, of course, I really appreciate. So uh, let's hear from Lisa. And I'll have a couple cleanup points at the end. Okay, I'm here today with Lisa Sermon. Lisa is actually a former student in some of my classes and reached out to me and said, hey, Jason, you know what? In two consecutive podcasts, you talked about business owners in small business scenarios not being able to get help with cash flow planning. But hey, that's actually what I do. So 
Lisa, I'm interested to hear a little bit about the type of work that you do, the target audience that you have, how you track those clients and how you help them out. Thanks a lot. Um, so in my past, before I did the CFP credential, which I completed in the last year, I have worked with clients that are, I would say, small to medium-sized businesses. Uh, some are established, some are just getting established and trying to get going. And the type of work that I had done for those clients was to really help with taking an overall financial view of the company including often they're owned personally or by a family. It's a family-run business, uh, helping with uh, tax planning and with legal uh, planning, banking, um, things like uh, working on the strategy for dividends for shareholders versus other types of compensation, those sorts of things. And a big part of what I worked on with these businesses often came down to helping them to manage their cash flows on a month to month basis. It often is a company that's not so big that has a CFO full-time position, but big enough that they have a bookkeeper and they have a, an accounting firm that they use for their annual statements. And my position was somewhere in between there to uh, work and help them to better understand their financial position and put them in a good position going forward, especially with regards to their cash flows so that they can see what they can get out of the business eventually, I guess. Often what happens is that a small business might be making a profit, might be growing, might have a good business case and business plan, but when it comes to actually withdrawing money from the business, the owners are finding it's very difficult to get their return, especially in the early years, because a lot of the cash flow is going to supporting the business in its startup and its growth. So that's something that I think business uh, people sometimes don't understand when they start a business, but that's the sort of thing that I'd like to help with. So you're a sort of uh, ideal client. Would this be... Like I understand when you say, you know, no CFO and thinking sort of two to five million in revenue, 10 to 20 employees, would that be about typical? Yes, I think so. Um, anywhere from a million up to 10 million sort of thing. Yeah, perfect. And uh, you're in Calgary. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Yes. Yes, that's right. Are your clients primarily in Calgary? or Calgary and surrounding area. I actually will work with anyone within a reasonable geographic distance. I was uh, talking with a small business in Red Deer recently. Everything's a little on hold with this COVID right now, although I'm sure the need will be great going forward of businesses trying to uh, work out their financial uh, futures. Yeah, it's a trade-off right now. I'm sure there's a ton of need for this, but a, a real hesitation to pay for it, right? Yes, yes, that's right. And any particular industries that you prefer to work in or where your clients would be um, better represented? I know like you have a background a little bit with technology, right? Not so much technology. Actually, um, I worked with uh, oil services companies. I've worked in, uh, in retail companies and other industries. And also, I did have experience with a te technology company way back. Uh, in fact, we owned it <laughs> and managing the, the cash flows. That was 20 years ago. But uh, yes, it was an interesting proposition. So, 
Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of oil field servicing companies that are in the midst of that sort of tough decision right now, right? That's uh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And for the owners, you got to think of it of uh, you know what's the maximum they can get out of the business if things are not going if they're not going to be able to make money. So try to maximize what they can get out of shutting down. Hopefully, it's it's a position where they can take away a bit of money. Yeah. So in an engagement like that, do you, do you help them with that liquidation process? Yes, I have. I have done that. Uh, and there's tax planning involved in some of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's where you start to get into what's the ACB for everything and yes. what's your depreciation look like. And yeah, absolutely. In those cases, do you find that it's more a financial discussion or is it more of a an emotional discussion? Where do you sort of strike that balance? Yeah, it's a combination. You know, if people have poured their life into their business for 10 or 15 years, then then I think ultimately, you know, it's kind of right in the middle. Uh, but ultimately, it has to financially make sense for the people. And if there's if there doesn't look like a way within a reasonable period of time, to make money, in fact, you're just going to erode your equity over time, then there's a certain point that you've got to just take your equity, hopefully you've built up a bit of equity and take it and move on to something else. So would you sort of plant that bug? Would you say, look, you're, you know, you're, you're depleting the value of your biggest investment. It's time to think about other ways to move here. Or do people come to that realization on their own? I think you have to plant the bug to some extent, but you know, business owners see their financial statements usually on a monthly basis. And if they have someone uh, guiding them a little bit, which is partially what I was doing, then you can sort of see the writing on the wall and it's just to highlight that writing on the wall. That nudge at the right time, right? Yes. yes. Now, often business owners will sort of take deliberately low income, right? To to leave more money in the business, to grow the business with, I think the, whether they think about it or not, with the ultimate goal of selling the business to enrich themselves. If you've got somebody who's been in that position and has been taking a low income and now the business is gonna have to be wound up, what's the conversation look like? And maybe how does that influence what you might say to business owners who are getting started or, or you know, currently running profitable businesses. It's can be a difficult decision for sure, but you know, overall you're trying to maximize what the shareholder can get out of the business, I guess, ultimately, right? So if you can't sell the business, I mean, I was in a situation where we had very little cash flow, but the business was growing and it was profitable, but there just wasn't enough cash because it was such a fast growing business. So we took very little money out of the company but then we were able to sell that business to a bigger player. And that's how we ended up getting, getting compensation for, for investing in that business. And at the end of the day, it was worthwhile. Sometimes you wondered if it was gonna be worthwhile, but it was. But in the case where you're gonna shut down the business and uh, you know, you're just trying to preserve what you have, I guess. If, if you can't sell your business, you try and preserve and maximize the value of your assets if you're gonna sell them and um, minimize your liabilities to the greatest possible extent. So if you're working with somebody who, and maybe this is part of why you chose to pursue the CFP uh, certification, if you're working with somebody who is taking a relatively low amount of personal income out and 
dumping everything back into the business. Yes. What kind of advice do you give to that person about their personal finances during that time? Well, it's part of an overall picture where somebody, you know, you have to be committed to the long-term view of what the business is going to provide. And um, I think that those people are going to have some personal financial challenges, but you hope that there is a way that they're able to keep their personal expenses in check while the business is in the early stages. Maybe uh, they have a spouse or something that also works that helps to support the family. And if you're keeping a lot of money in the business and not taking big dividends or you're not um, taking much, you know, maybe you take up to uh, the maximum for CPP as, as your income every year and just get, get your, so that you're contributing to CPP and then you don't take anything much beyond that. Um, you are building equity in your company that will see you through some difficult times in the future. And I think that that is something that business owners want to think about because when inevitably something bad happens and who could have seen what we're in now coming, if you have a company that has assets that have been financed a lot by the equity compared to debt, you're going to be in a lot better position than you are if you've used debt to finance your growth and you've taken more money out of the business in the meantime. So all of those things have to be kind of part of a pretty frank discussion about how are you going to finance your lifestyle, finance your, your family going forward, realizing that for a few years, you're probably not going to be able to take much money out of the business. I know it's a hard trade-off and I, I've been in that boat myself, right? Where you're taking a low personal income just to reinvest back into the business. It's, it's always a hard balance to strike. And I agree about the strength of having a spouse who's on a, you know, a nice, stable, regular income during that period and somebody who supports you. Yeah. Or maybe you have another way of accessing, you know, some, some way of supporting yourself. I, I don't know. But <laughs> what about, uh, you know, building up some reserves before you go start a business? Do you, you know, have you ever said, or give yourself a year, build a little emergency fund and, and then start the business? Or do you get to talk to people before they, uh, before they start businesses at all? Well, I haven't uh, been in that position. In fact, I'm currently working a little bit uh, with my husband who actually is part of my company as well. He, he's a lawyer by training. So he does more of the corporate finance type of clients where he's helping companies buy and sell properties and, and companies and so on. But we're looking at a new proposition right now. And I would generally say you want to have a business plan. You don't want to just go in blind. You've got to have some sort of reasonable projections about what it's going to look like. And I would agree that you want to build up your reserves a little bit <laughs> before you dive in because it's going to make it way easier in the first year or two. Yeah. Nothing like having a little bit of a cushion when you're making those decisions, right? Yes. Yes. In general, so you talk to these uh, you know, business owner clients and they're running businesses. And of course, it would be great if your business generated whatever, $200,000 a month of revenue and $150,000 a month of expense. But it's not what happens, right? Yeah. You, you typically have both of those figures are more erratic. So, so how do you help people to manage and understand what, what is really happening in their businesses? Well, I, uh, I really dig into the details of 
what money's going in and what money's going out. And I have done it on a month to month basis for a lot of businesses where I'll have a spreadsheet that shows month to month what the cash flows look like because there are these uh, lumpy amounts that come and go in an annually for a business. Um, as you mentioned in your previous podcast, there's professional fees. There's um, taxes sometimes surprise you when you have a big amount of tax to pay. <laughs> or you have even your installments every quarter that you have to pay and it's a bigger, lumpier amount that you have to come up with. So, so I try to do kind of a, a cash flow that is a month to month basis. And then I have a second spreadsheet that is the year to year basis that gives the owner a better picture of the big picture when you just look at it on a year to year basis, that this will be worthwhile eventually over the next five years, here's your projections. But you know, we've got to manage these month to month up and up and down cash flows. And it's recognizing that there are usual cash flows and they're in a business there's unusual amounts and the third thing is that if you are growing you have a working capital issue which means that the amount of money that you are um you have out there in say accounts receivable and how much you're paying to suppliers and then maybe you have inventory and so on you have to finance those short-term assets somehow and with the growing business that's also something that you have to really watch those those figures you know there's a, a lot there um how much of that uh, work you do with your business owner clients is spent on just understanding accounting principles things like let's say depreciation would be a fairly obvious one amortization um, yeah for sure uh, it's something that a lot of clients don't understand is amortization um, in it's a non-cash amount I guess so you know you can add that back into the cash flow if you're looking at more of an annual <laughs> statement uh, but you also have to bear in mind that usually over, if you've got a business that you plan to run for a long period of time, you're going to have to replace your assets eventually. So you do have to have some cash reserves kind of set aside eventually or a financing ability to replace your assets eventually. So it's not to totally ignore the amortization and depreciation figures completely because they are an indication of what you might have to invest in your business in the future. It's always a trade-off because those they have real tax implications, right? If yeah. you're talking about, yes. and, and if you, you know, if you end up with an asset sale again, real tax implications. Yes. Share sale, real tax implications, right? Definitely, definitely. From a tax planning perspective, how much uh, effort do you put into lifetime capital gains exemption planning? Is this something you consider important, or is it sort of a, a nice to have? Let's say. Well, um, I would always work with an accountant, uh, whoever the accountant is with the business. And definitely, if you can get that, it's, it's great. It's just that so many businesses, when they go to sell uh, the company, the owner wants to sell the shares, but the buyer wants to buy the assets. So it's a common problem. So often if you want to sell the shares, you have to take a lower price as a result of that. And uh, there's all sorts of implications, but the tax uh, savings from the lifetime capital gains exemption is, is high. And also if it's going to be sold to a family member or something like that, there's, there's going to be some ability to take advantage of that. 
you know, you talk about working with the accountant, and this is where I think there's maybe a natural question about value proposition here. You know, how often would it be where a prospective client says, well, really, you know, I've got an accountant, they're good. I'm not sure where I see the, the value in engaging somebody like yourself. How do you sort of distinguish yourself from, from the job of the accountant or the job of the bookkeeper? Where does that uh, line get drawn? Yeah, it is a kind of right in the middle. Um, <clears throat> the accountant uh, will provide uh, really in-depth tax uh, and year-end statement preparation, obviously, and um, including help with um, proposals such as a state freeze or you know a share uh, section 85 or a section 86 type of uh, share situation. If you want to get your accountant involved in your day-to-day -day financial running of your business, it's going to be a very expensive proposition to do that. <laughs> financial management of the business, including helping you with your cash flows, because as we know, accounting rates are deservedly very high. They've gone to school for a very long time and they have a lot of expertise, but their rates are very high for something like that. So, uh, the bookkeeper is great for doing the day-to-day -day bookkeeping and so on, but they don't have enough of a knowledge of the financial statements and cash flows and how you interact with bankers and how you interact with your accountants and explaining the complicated accounting situations that might be proposed to the client to give them a little bit more uh, insight into why and how they might be doing something. So that, that has been in the past, it worked for me. That makes a lot of sense. Now you, uh, you mentioned lending here or dealing with the bankers, and I know you have a background in commercial lending, I think both domestic and international, I think I have that right? Uh, yes, the, the um, commercial lending was, yes, domestic in Canada. How much of what you do is helping business owners figure out how to access capital or how to, how to borrow money? Yeah, that can be a very big part of it, uh, working with the bankers and renegotiating favorable terms. Uh, we were able to do that uh, with some clients, which actually ends up saving them a lot of money if you can get your um, terms uh, improved and your interest rate lowered. I guess the approach that I took with this one client in particular was showing them the long-term benefit of improving and having a stronger balance sheet and improving their cash flow, and then for then being able to take that to the bank and low, you know, get much better loan um, arrangements for them that save them a lot of money and in interest. So, is some of that just about sort of cleaning up the balance sheet, or is it really about you know? And I mean, just a balance sheet that doesn't have a bunch of history on it or legacy items, or is it really about you know? having dollars in certain accounts or whatever. Yes, cases. I would say a key thing is debt to equity. <laughs> At the end of the day, how much debt you have versus equity that you have in your business and to gradually try to improve that. Because if you are over a certain level of debt to equity, let's say three to one debt to equity, you are every time there's a dip in um, maybe seasonal dip in business or it could be like a, a trend that's happening like in the oil patch has happened where it goes up and down uh, dramatically from year to year um, if your debt is higher than three to one you're going to be starting to have problems <laughs> with your bank 
So if you can try to gradually improve that over time, which takes reinvesting some of your earnings back into your business and gradually paying down your debt, it's kind of a disciplined approach to that. Then over the long run, you're going to end up with a much stronger company that can withstand the ups and downs. What are your feelings here? I know it's very common. The small business owner goes to borrow money and they're asked to provide personal guarantees. And I think most people do it without really thinking about it. Uh, how do you manage that personal guarantees discussion? Yes, you are right that most banks, unfortunately, will not lend to small businesses unless they have a really, really strong back business record. Uh, and usually the type of businesses that need financing from banks are the ones that are just starting up or are in the growth stage. Most banks will ask for personal guarantees from their business clients. And it's an unfortunate, but it's a necessary part of starting a business often if you need to access capital from a bank or another uh, credit provider. It can be something like the business, uh, the BDC Business Development Bank. It might be a credit union, which is, I've worked with credit unions before and had good experience with that, but they will require that personal guarantee. And I think that people just have to realize what it means, that if you are going to be starting a business, you really do have to have that all in mentality, but there are risks associated with that. So they should be aware of those risks and try to mitigate them wherever possible. And if they can make their business be successful over a period of time, I think you get into a position where you can negotiate with your bank to release some or part of those guarantees over time or reduce the amount on them. What would you expect to see? Uh, so we're mid-May of 2020 here. You had a small business owner borrowing under, let's say, reasonably favorable terms from a credit union. Okay. What would you expect to see in terms of, let's say, interest rate and repayment conditions on a loan like that today? Yeah, ballpark, very ballpark here, I think is useful. Okay. Um, for a capital loan, usually it's somewhere like that's for equipment, for instance, something that is a chattel. Uh, it might be three to five years with like, if it's if you've got a track record in your business, um, you know, it's going to be amortized over that period, usually three or four or five years. And it's going to be maybe prime plus, I don't know, one and a half or 2% for a small business owner. And uh, the best rate you can usually get is prime plus one. It might be more if you don't have such a good track record. For an operating line of credit, that's to finance your working capital. Again, that's more of a revolving line of credit. And again, you know, whatever you're getting on your fixed assets, you're going to probably get uh, a margining of your inventory and your accounts receivable, which means margining your accounts receivable and inventory means they take the value month to month of what inventory and accounts receivable you have, and then they take a percentage of that the bank does, they take security over those accounts receivable and in inventory, and they loan you money based on the percentage of, of the value of those things. So that is um, often, again, if you are in the range of prime plus two for your 
um, capital assets, it's probably going to be what you're paying on your operating line. I think that's helpful. I think a lot of people just will never have seen that. And nice to hear how the lending gets calculated. I, and of course, I think, and you pointed this already, the bigger problem is just going to be qualifying for that loan in the first place, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Having a relationship, you know, existing relationship often helps with a banker. Ultimately, they're doing secured lending, so they just have to have their security. Now, when you say that relationship, so do you find some financial institutions where it really is possible to, to develop that relationship and somewhere I think it's harder? And does that go back to your comment about, for example, credit unions earlier? Do you have the, sort of your favorite financial institutions or will you send your small business clients and say, look, you're at the wrong bank. You should move your accounts over now because you know three years from now it'll be easier to borrow money. Do you have that type of conversation? I think that uh, as you go up the food chain of banks, the chartered banks are the hardest to get money from, and they're often to be the hardest to have relationships with. But you can build that up through having a combination of you know uh, personal mortgages, maybe investment accounts or something like that, and a relationship with the banker that allows you to build up a, uh, you know, a rapport that maybe you could then get into business lending. Um, ATB was always one that uh, is more conducive to lending to small and medium businesses and has better terms. And I haven't personally dealt with the Business Development Bank of Canada, but they certainly advertise that, you know, they are targeting small and medium-sized businesses and providing credit. Credit unions, again, that's something that some people would have grown up with if they lived in a small or medium-sized community. Maybe in the one case, uh, the family was were farmers and they had years and years and years of experience with farmland and loans to farmers and so on. And then they got into the business. So they already had a very long-standing relationship as a result of loaning money to farmers and their and their land purchases, et cetera. Now, just going way, way back to the sort of pure personal finance side, and I'm sure some of this is what influenced your decision to pursue the financial planning certification, but you, know, you mentioned taking enough wage to hit your CPP max. Yes. Do you think that CPP is a, a must for the small business owner? Or, what happens when you have the accountant who really prefers the all dividend method of compensation? Do you get to influence those conversations at all? Do you know, I, I haven't been involved in a lot of those conversations, but I definitely think that each owner, you've got to explore it with them and how they feel about paying taxes and, and amounts now versus in the future. A lot of people will say, I don't want to pay the taxes now. I think that just to provide them with the education of having CPP is a, is a great backstop for your retirement years. It's an indexed benefit that is going to be a really solid part of, you know, not a huge amount, but it, it'll help you to uh, have some uh, guaranteed funds in retirement. (laughs) Being a business person, you're probably in a higher risk uh, situation. So to consider that you might want to have something that's guaranteed in the future, that I think you've just got to educate people. This could be available to you if you want to take up to YMPE in income, but there is a cost in the short term of that, and that's paying those CPP premiums. 
so I, I don't know. It's a, each owner is going to have a different viewpoint. I agree that accountants would tend to just go to the dividend model often just pay yourself dividends and save the taxes but there's some other factors that you need to highlight when you're talking about cpp for business owners in the future like i think what you're looking to do here is to develop relationships with financial planners who you know are perfectly comfortable on the the personal finance side but but may not be comfortable on the small business side or or you know, kind of recognize the limits of, of where they want to be involved here. So how would you see yourself working with that you know, financial planning professional who, who really does take care of the insurance and retirement planning and the asset management and, and so forth? What would a relationship like that look like? Well, um, it could be a referral relationship, like uh, both of your uh, people that you spoke with on your other podcasts were saying, I don't know who to reach out to in this situation. So it would be a referral type of basis where they have a client that has a business and they don't know how to address the cash flow problems the business is having. And then referring back, I could refer back clients to a CFP that specializes in some areas that I don't specialize in. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think you carry any insurance or investment licensing. Do I have that right, Lisa? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that for the financial planner who's working on the, the personal financial planning side, a lot of times with business owners, they're just not sure what they can commit to risk management and their personal cash flow management or budgeting and their investment activity as well. So That's right. That's lots of maybe less familiar concepts for people to work through. Do you have any other thoughts about dealing with those business owner clients? Anything that you think is worth the personal financial planner to consider when they're dealing with their small business owner clients? Well, I just think that the financial side of the business and the cash flow side of the business, to me, it's ultimately one of the most important things that doesn't often get looked at. It's not understood well, and it doesn't seem to be a lot of people focus on it. And it can really make or break a business over the long term. If you can focus on the cash flow with a view to a long term result of having a, a more stable balance sheet and easier to understand cash flows, it can be the thing that ends up making sure that the business is going to be a, a longer term player and the owners are going to get a decent living and a return out of the business eventually. So I guess I've said it already that businesses that are new businesses or growing businesses or businesses that are dealing with some sort of demand shock or some sort of emergency situation, all of those types of businesses are going to be really looking at their cash flows and how they're going to make it through. And I think that some attention to that would really benefit businesses in the long run. Right now, I think everybody is thinking to some extent about just basic survivability, unless you're selling toilet paper or if you're Zoom or whatever, right? But I think everybody's going to be thinking about that. Now, actually, I did want, I have one more question about something you mentioned earlier. Uh, do you get involved at all with people who are in real estate leases? Do you, you know, you talked about renegotiating bank loans. Have you had clients where they were renegotiating real estate leases? 
Yes, I have. Um, just a little bit. Uh, it's actually an area that my husband is really experienced at, and he works with clients and has done a lot of that. So being a lawyer, he's uh, got that sort of uh, background in property management is something that his background is in. So, But yes, I have been involved also in a couple of cases where as the business is going through various business cycles and et cetera, there comes a time when maybe you're thinking about, are we going to be able to continue with this business? And you really should look to your landlord to see if they will negotiate with you because it could be a make or break part of the business going forward. I guess I'm curious as to, you know, if you're running like a retail operation here and May of 2020 or a restaurant operation here in May of 2020, how much ability do you have to you know, manage costs on that lease, which is often going to be a big part of your just keeping things afloat while you wait to get back to work? It's interesting right now, people are approaching their landlords right now. I have some friends that uh, run a restaurant and they've had to approach their landlord and ask them for, it's, it can be either a deferral that is then amortized over the remaining term of the lease. Or in some cases, I'm aware of a situation where they say, we'll just add three months on to the end of the lease, which is way worse for the landlord. But maybe if you don't do that, the business isn't gonna be around and they're not gonna be able to pay their lease at all. So I, it comes down to the power the landlord has versus the power that the business has. It's interesting situations right now, but I do think that all businesses should be negotiating a little bit right now if they've been affected by COVID, some sort of deal with their landlord. It's gotta be beneficial to both parties or you're not gonna get a deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a real tough time right now for this, right? And uh, for the landlords, it's a sort of catch-22. Yes, you need to quit, keep collecting rent, but if you kick a tenant out, it's not like there's businesses lining up to have commercial. Yes, you should hope that your tenant is going to make it through and be able to, in the future, resume paying their lease and hopefully make up most of the missed lease payments. But there's, you know, everybody's taking a haircut. <laughs> so it might include landlords are going to have to take a bit of a haircut as well. Now, I just looking for contact information here. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do that? The best would be to reach out via email. Our company is called Agenda Associates Limited, and we do business and business consulting with a me being more the financial side and my husband being more the legal side. And the email for that is sermon, S-U-R-M-O-N, at telus.net. I guess your clients mostly work, you said, on a retainer basis, right? So they would have some fee arrangement you would enter into up front? Yeah, basically kind of try and estimate the hours that maybe there might be an upfront consultation. And then it could be even quarterly a quarterly check-in to check in, see how the cash flows are going, you know, spend a few hours on it to review it with the owner and just sort of see if there's anything unusual that needs to be highlighted, or it could be monthly, or it could be annually, or a one-time thing. Well, that's great. I really appreciate reaching out like this, Lisa. You know, it's nice you said there's a gap there. And clearly Jason's not aware of the solution to that. So appreciate that. I'm sure a lot of people will find this interesting. And, and I hope some folks do reach out to you to, to help out their 
small business owner clients to just create that, that stability and, and certainty where otherwise it's so lacking. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, I'm back with Lisa. So this is a first for us, actually, where Lisa listened to her recording and said, you know, Jason, there's a couple of things I'd like to add, and I'm I'm always happy. I always want to give the podcast guests the best chance possible to tell their story. So let's take a few minutes and add a couple of things here. And the first is, so Lisa, you built out your, and I saw it myself, it looks pretty good. You built out your LinkedIn profile and a little bit more about your business. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Right. If anybody wanted to contact me, I am available now through LinkedIn and I would welcome any messages and chances for collaboration. And the spelling of my name, Lisa, as it sounds, and Sermon is S-U-R-M-O-N. And it also just has a little blurb about our company, Agenda Associates, which is my husband and my company that we've run for 14 years here in Calgary, and it just describes that what we do is uh, provide solutions to small and medium businesses, kind of in the financial and uh, also helping with some legal agreements, not as a lawyer, but just working uh, business owners through the various legal agreements that they might have to be involved with throughout the duration of the business, which is something that comes up from time to time. My husband has a background in law please feel free to check it out. And I look forward to uh, chatting with anyone who would be interested in finding out more. The second thing that you had suggested would be a, a useful item to talk about here was your pursuit of the uh, CFP certification. And I find it's not typically when somebody who's coming at this from a tax or accounting background, which I, I would kind of fit you into that category, that accounting sort of background, I find that they're taking the CFP really to sort of round out their training as far as delivering personal financial planning advice. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to pursue CFP certification, Lisa? Right. Well, I already had a pretty good grounding in the areas of business finance, uh, as we discussed, cash flows and financial statements, taxation, and I'd done some work with estate planning, 
working with some lawyers and accountants. But uh, with a small business person, the, the business is the pers personal and the personal is the business. So there is a whole lot of areas there that uh, really, you know, maybe I didn't have as much of a, a good understanding. And some of those would include all of the information about, you know, registered plans and pension plans and the different um, government plans that are available. Uh, very useful to business people to understand those better. Uh, and secondly, just insurance and insurance strategies that could be used for businesses, such as in a buy-sell arrangement or a succession and estate arrangement uh, that you're trying to uh, work through with business owners. Um, I had a little bit of understanding of it, but the course, doing the CFP course, really helped me to un understand how it all fits together. Um, and of course, there's always retirement planning for business owners, and that's a big important piece as well. And that section actually has been significantly beefed up in the 2020 changes to curriculum that uh, retirement planning. Interesting. Good. Now, what about uh, on the, do you talk about disability insurance at all with your small business owner clients? I haven't, and that was a very useful um, area. I, I plan to be able to at least be conversant on that because it's really important. Uh, and it's another area that's not very well understood by people, you know, even people that have disability policies don't understand how they work 100%. So it is something that you can add value on. Yeah, I find even in the business, people who do this all the time, day in and day out, if they do a lot of disability insurance work, they know this, but there's a lot of people who never really touch disability insurance. So I find even insurance licensed folks it's a hit or miss as to how comfortable they are with disability insurance. Exactly. And I'm, again, no expert in it. I would expect to work with an advisor who was an expert in that area, but it's, um, it's definitely worthwhile to have a good understanding overview of how, how it works and where it's valuable. And then what about group benefits? Do you get into that discussion at all with your clients? I haven't to date, but um, again, I will hope to use that in the future and you know work with other advisors who have a lot more expertise in that area because it is important also for businesses. Yeah, I just actually curiously had a friend who happens to be a small business owner and he hit me up. He said, you know, I think maybe it's time to look at benefits. He's got sort of four or five employees and he was looking to provide a particular benefit to them. And that's just what I did. I put him in touch with somebody I know on the benefit side. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's a difficult time right now, but, you know, some businesses they are going to be wanting to focus on their core staff that they want to keep around and they want, maybe they can't, you know, provide uh, raises and bonuses and so on, but, by providing a few extra benefits to people that could be very valuable to uh, employees for sticking around with the company. Yeah, absolutely. And I think not everybody's suffering in the COVID era. Some businesses are built a little bit differently and don't necessarily rely so much on, say, foot traffic or whatever other trends we're seeing that COVID is really impacting. Now, on the CFP side, so what did you find missing when you went through the curriculum? I, I always like this question because everybody has their own bugbear, right? Right, exactly. 
Well, I thought uh, it was pretty comprehensive overall, but uh, with my background in more of the business side and business finance, I thought there could have been a little bit uh, more filling out of um, business credit and finance and the different uh, options that are available and how to assess it and work with bankers or other finance companies in businesses. Do you think a section like that would be more about relationships or would it be more about the technical side of lending? Like would it would it be the five C's of credit or would it be about, you know, here's what your banker is going to talk to you about? I think that there's some just overview of what's available to business people for loan facilities and how those facilities work. That would be technical, not overly technical, but also the relationship is so important for small businesses. So you'd have to have something included about that, I think. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, I appreciate the uh, follow-on comments, Lisa. I'm glad you reached out to say, you know, I'd like to add a few things here. Do you have any last-minute comments before we uh, wrap up for the second time? <laughs> um, not a lot. Just thanks again for reaching out to me to begin with uh, to do this podcast. I really appreciate it, Jason. And, and I look forward to being in contact with anybody who's interested in the future with exploring whether there might be some service that I could provide to them. Perfect, that was awesome. Thanks so much. Okay, lots there. You can hear that Lisa has dealt with a lot of different issues with small business owners and their cash flow management. Uh, I did want to just talk about asset sale versus share sale. Uh, she mentioned this in the uh, course of the interview. And I want to mention a share sale is usually preferred by the seller of a business. And the reason a, a seller generally prefers a share sale is because they can use their lifetime capital gains exemption. And it really removes any sort of entanglements for them. They have a clean exit. They have cash in their pocket. Uh, in 2020, just shy of $900,000 potentially tax-free by using that lifetime capital gains exemption. On the other hand, an asset sale is what most buyers of businesses prefer. And the reason is because the buyer isn't buying all the liabilities of the business. That buyer, when they make a share purchase, is really buying both the tax liabilities of the business and any sort of legal liabilities, uh, such as if you had a a uh, manager who previously harassed a staff member, and now that staff member has uh, lost their job, they might come back and uh, sue the corporation, the business, and that could fall onto the new owner. In practice, then, asset sales are far more common than share sales. However, there are some circumstances when we see share sales. The most common, and what we see a little bit in the financial services business, is when you have a senior who is selling to a junior and really funding that sale. So I'm 50 years in the business and I'm selling to somebody who's five years in the business. They don't have any cash. I'm really going to lend that person the cash to make that purchase. Well, it makes sense for me to set the conditions in a way that's going to be most favorable for me, which is probably going to be a share sale. You also see this where you sometimes have a much larger firm buying a much smaller firm, 
And the reason for this is the due diligence process that a very large buyer puts in will be very rigorous. That large buyer will typically know what all the sort of items hiding in the proverbial closet are or the skeletons in the closet, that type of thing. Or they'll have strong covenants, restrictive covenants to protect themselves. So if something does show up later on, they'll be able to go back to the seller and say, hey, you never told us about this risk. We're going to take that out of your proceeds somehow, or we're going to have a holdback amount that we're going to attach. I also want to take a minute to talk about small business lending. And Lisa, of course, talks about this in fair detail. She mentions in particular the Business Development Bank of Canada, BDC. Some of you might be familiar with BDC. This is where I find we get into specialization. So I know if I were looking to buy either machinery, a piece of machinery that has some tangible value, or if I were looking to buy real property, a piece of land and a building, I would consider a BDC as a possible lender, although there are others. But this is what you quite often find in small business lending is this high degree of specialization. And some of the folks on the call or on the uh, who are listening to the podcast here might actually have previously dealt with, let's say, uh, an entity like WCB Maxim. That's a Western Canadian bank has a specialized lender just for financial services folks who are buying a book of business. And that's a maxim. So there's entities out there like that that just do that specialized area of lending. And again, somebody like Lisa, she'll know what those specialized lenders are. She'll be able to point you in the right direction. And as she mentions, really get your financial statements cleaned up to facilitate that lending. The number for today's episode is three. The number for today's episode is three. Hey, today I want to take a minute to talk about Pavel Berminsky's podcast. Some of you will know Pavel. He's the founder of Snap Projections, which is a really well done financial planning software, quite good for multi-year financial planning projections and can take a bunch of variables into account. Um, Pavel also hosts a podcast called the Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice podcast. I have been a guest on that podcast, and I guess some sort of lapse of judgment for Pavel. But the podcast, he interviews different financial advisors, mostly, notwithstanding myself, but mostly financial advisors on there talking about their practices. And it's good. He, he goes through so many different business models. He talks to people who operate in very traditional models or people who have newer types of models. He talks about compensation. He talks about what they're doing to wow their clients. He talks about the technology they use. It's quite well done. And Pavel knows financial advisory businesses, so he's able to really get into what those businesses look like. And I think it's useful. If I were building a financial advisory practice from scratch today, I would go back and listen to all roughly 65 or so of Pavel's episodes. That should be about what it is by the time we go live with this episode and really learn all the different ins and outs of what a model might look like in Canada. 
the most recent episode, in fact, Pavel had somebody on there who runs a somewhat unconventional practice, by the name of uh, Tim Nash at Good Investing, who runs a practice that is mostly focused on ethical investing. Again, give it a listen. Uh, it'll be linked in the show notes for today's episode. Really appreciate you joining us today. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks. We'll have Aaron LaFuente on again. Aaron was on last episode talking about loss of capacity planning for small business owners. When she joins us in two weeks' time, we're going to talk about capacity in more detail, the loss of capacity and what that looks like. I hope you do join us for that. Thank you very much and enjoy your continued learning. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>